If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. You might recognise the name Giacomo Casanova for his reputation as a serial seducer. But according to author Leo Damroche, Casanova was in fact much more than that. An aspiring priest, a spy, an army officer, magus and Masonic master, Casanova led a colourful life that saw him interacting with kings, empresses and some of the most famous writers of the time. Emily Briffitt spoke to Leo to find out more. Hello to you, Leo. It's lovely to be talking to you today. Lovely to talk to you, Emily, and thanks so much for having me on. Well, today we're going to be talking all about your new book, Adventurer, which is all about the life of Giacomo Casanova. Can we start by talking about how did you actually get into this? Well, my uh, academic field has always been the 18th century, um, mostly British, but also French and Uh, It happened that in 2009, I had the chance to teach in a Harvard summer program in Venice, where I had never been. And in fact, I spent a year uh, swatting up Italian so I could actually be understood there. And I fell in love with Venice, as anyone would. And um, because my subject is an 18th century course, I thought, um, what could I put in that would be of interest here? And I began reading about Casanova and found out both how extraordinarily interesting he was in a hundred ways, but also that there has never been what I think is a really adequate biography. And because I have been a biographer, uh, I just thought one day I'm going to do that. And uh, finally, I got my chance and now I've done it. And here we are sort of thing. Yeah. So when you first started researching Casanova's life, what did you expect to learn about him? Was there anything in particular that surprised you? Yeah, because what we all know is he was one of the world's most famous seducers. And that's because he wrote a brilliant autobiography, 3,000 pages long, which stops before the last 25 years of his life when he was getting older and depressed and felt it wasn't interesting anymore. Uh, And he does certainly talk a lot, often in my book, try to think how much he's not telling us or didn't understand. So it was by no means as Um, wholesome as he represents it. But still, he cared a lot about different people, their individuality. Uh, He tried not to hurt them. Uh, I think he would have been upset if he believed he had hurt them. Uh, Sometimes he did, and he didn't like to know that. Uh, Complicated in that way, certainly. Uh, And it is fascinating. He writes more frankly, although never obscenely, about sexual desire and fulfillment than um, anybody in his time, I think. And I 
many people now, but also he had the most varied, extraordinary life. Uh, he invented a lottery for the French government that made him rich, then he became poor again. He was a gambler, a professional gambler, a card sharp. Uh, he was a con man. Uh, he was a magus. Uh, he persuaded people he had magical powers. He uh, sort of detached a very rich French noblewoman from an enormous fortune because she thought he could help her to be reborn as a young person. Uh, she finally saw through him, and that particular scam was over. Uh, he was uh, exiled from his native Venice for 18 years for various reasons. Uh, when he finally was allowed back in, almost unbelievably, uh, he picked up some cash as a secret informer for the government, although he himself had been informed on and spent a year imprisoned in the ceiling uh, prison of the Ducal Palace. It's called Ipiombi, the leads, because it was a lead roof. You fry in the summer and freeze in the winter. He was the first person who ever escaped from there. He managed to break through the roof, get down, hire a gondola, go to the mainland, and then he spent his 18 years in exile. Uh, and yet he ended up, you know, working for the same people who had uh, incarcerated him. Uh, and finally spent his last um, dozen years in exile in a castle in Bohemia, where he had a job as a sort of librarian. It was a sinecure depressed, you know, wishing he were young again. Uh, that was why he wrote this great autobiography, was to relive when he was an uh, extraordinarily charismatic person. It sounds like a truly extraordinary life. There's so much more to it, perhaps, than what you might initially think. Yeah, and uh, I'll say two more things that are different about what I tried to do. One is he was a prolific writer on many subjects, and although not necessarily an original thinker, uh, nobody has ever really used that material. It's partly because it's all in French, which he knew was the language of people all over Europe, Italian, not widely understood. Uh, and even biographers who can read French didn't go to the trouble. Plus, there have been two brilliant modern editions of all that material, which hadn't been available till fairly recently. And the other is there's so much wonderful commentary most of it in French, some in Italian, uh, by people who are by no means academic pedants, but people just trying to figure this character out and who write about Freemasons, which he was, about the culture of gambling, about his entire universe. Uh, and those have never been used. So I was able to draw on the most extraordinary number of really thoughtful people who have pondered the meaning of this guy's life. Could you maybe tell us what sources you've had to draw upon here? Well, the, uh, I, I will mention the um, uh, the editions. They're huge, three-volume collections. One is the Great Library of the Pleiad, and the other is another series. Uh, his original manuscript uh, was held in great secrecy by a German publishing firm named Brockhaus, which had in the 1720s uh, issued the only available edition for a whole century. Uh, it was in French, but it was Baudelaireized. Uh, somebody took out all kinds of stuff and rewrote stuff, not just the erotic material. This guy had different politics from Casanova and, and rewrote everything he thought about that. Nobody knew, but nobody could see the manuscript. Uh, it was almost destroyed uh, in the Second World War in the bombing. Uh, it was put in the safe of a bank where Winston Churchill found out about it. He was a great admirer of Casanova, not surprisingly, vicariously, I suppose, uh, and sent an army truck to retrieve it. Uh, but it was still kept 
away from uh, the public until finally uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris bought it uh, for a large sum and published what turned out to be this brand new insight into what this man's story was. Uh, and wonderful specialists edited that collection. Um, so that's the, uh, the main thing I had to work with that just made the job possible. You've spoken a bit also about his autobiography. Now, what can this tell us about the world around him? What can this tell us of Casanova's character? Well, um, autobiography, as we understand it, was really born in the 18th century uh, in Rousseau's Confessions, uh, which he uh, quite consciously named after the Confessions of Augustine, but it's a completely different kind of book. Augustine's is a prayer to the Almighty addressed in the second person uh, to expose his sins and make him, uh, you know, converted human. Uh, Rousseau is confessing all the stuff, the shameful things he did, the embarrassing things, and trying to, to recreate his actual lived experience in a way that no one had ever done. Uh, Rousseau says, uh, I didn't just write about it, j'y retombe, I fell back into it. And before that, the term was memoirs. Some famous general or politician would write down recollections of why they were a great general or politician. And it was very little about how they grew up, what, what their personality was, and so on. Um, so the Confessions invented what a new name had to be created for, autobiography, which did not exist till the 19th century as a word. And Casanova, who had read Rousseau, but thought, in fact, Rousseau was kind of uh, not really revealing the truth about himself, uh, was inspired to do better. Uh, and uh, he fills his account with all the uh, the rich details of what it was like to be in Constantinople as a young man or in Corfu or in Madrid uh, and what the culture was like and what the people were like and what, what he thought of the language and whether he could learn it. He never tried to learn English. He thought it was hopeless, um, partly because he was very witty. And he said, I can never make people laugh in a language I can't speak well. So he would talk to people that knew French or Italian. Uh, so it's in fact, and many people have said this, uh, the novelist Stefan Zweig said it, it's just a panorama of 18th century life from the top to the bottom uh, by somebody who'd lived it all. Uh, and he said it's this the material there for a hundred novels. So I want to take you back to talking about Casanova himself. So can you actually tell me his story? He was born in 1725 in Venice, and he was a Venetian through and through. It was a culture of masking, of posturing, of uh, of making people believe what you wanted them to believe. Uh, his parents were both actors. He grew up in a world of theater. Uh, uh, people wore masks, not just for carnival, but at half the year. Uh, and the reason they wore them, it's pretty clear, historians have written about this, is while you're in a mask, you are literally incognito. If somebody does recognize your voice, it would be most impolite to acknowledge that they know you. It's like you're in a privileged space when you're behind that mask. Uh, and the main industry of Venice, which had been a great commercial uh, center in the Middle Ages, but was now getting marginalized that way, uh, was gambling. Uh, they had an official state casino, Ridato, uh, which was run by the noblemen of Venice. 
Uh, and uh, people flocked from all over Europe to wear masks and have, you know, assignations and lose a lot of money at the Ridotto and uh, buy paintings from Canaletto that they could take home with them. Uh, and it was like, you know, a, a much more beautiful Las Vegas in the 18th century. And that was the culture the guy grew up in. And he was keenly aware that uh, he was not uh, a member of the noble class, which was very jealous of its privileges. Uh, and he liked to believe that his biological father was probably the theater manager where his mother worked, who was a nobleman, and it may even be true, but he wanted to think he was a prince in disguise. And at one point, uh, when he was in his early 20s, uh, he happened to rescue an extremely distinguished patrician uh, who had suddenly been felled by a stroke. Uh, and the doctors were going to put mercury plasters on his chest, which would have killed him. And Casanova knew enough to see that this was giving a guy a high fever, made them take it off. They thought he must have incredible powers. He must be a brilliant physician. In fact, he was just letting nature take its course. And the uh, senator, his name was Matteo Bragadin, uh, was so taken with this young man that he adopted him like a son, which was not legal. Uh, he couldn't uh, inherit the man's wealth because the noble class protected its boundaries. But he then became the nobleman he always thought he was. Uh, and it was because he then uh, put on too many airs, uh, was known to be a Freemason and free thinker, uh, that he got locked up in the the attic of the Ducal Palace. Uh, so his story is one of getting away with things until suddenly the town is too hot to hold him. Uh, Venice, he had to leave by uh, literally escaping. But again and again, by the time he fetched up in Bohemia, he had been expelled from almost every major city of Europe. Sooner or later, he got in enough trouble that they told him he could never come back. Uh, happened in London, happened in Paris, happened in Madrid. <laughs> so finally, his world just shrank and shrank uh, until he was um, licking his wounds in this exile as he felt it to be. Uh, so that's the arc of his story to have risen to great wealth when he was ripping off that old lady who thought she was going to be reborn or when he was actually successfully producing the Paris lottery and then crashing again into poverty and having to start all over. And as he got older and lost his charisma and charm, um, it stopped working. So uh, that's why he stopped writing his story down. How much do you think he was a product of his upbringing? He was a, a chameleon. One reason he always hit it off with people was he actually wasn't faking it. He had a kind of empathy for other people. It's not just seducing women. That older men like that uh, senator, you know, took him up because they enjoyed him so much. And so he would pick up the coloration of whatever group he was in. He, he actually had a degree from the University of Padua, a very distinguished university. There, there was not then one in Venice. Uh, and he was going to go into the church because for a young man of talent, uh, that was probably the best route. Um, church was very wealthy then, and he was a good speaker, and he got good at Latin, and he could have made a very successful career. So he went to Rome uh, to prepare for the priesthood and uh, met a pope and, you know, um, seemed to be doing very well. And then he messed up in various ways and was told never to come back to Rome. <laughs> and so he gave up on the priesthood, uh, and he tried the army. He went in the army for a bit. It was actually the Venetian army stationed in Corfu, but he was just playing at being a soldier, and that wasn't real. Uh, in fact, he never, ever 
until one brief time late in life, held an actual job again. Uh, he, he would always find some new way of hustling on his own behalf. Uh, so maybe I think you can say because Venice was such a performative, you know, um, masquerade of a city. Uh, that was really his upbringing. He hardly knew his mother, who was always traveling because she was a successful um, uh, actress. Uh, it's clear the relationship with his father was not deep. Uh, his grandmother loved him. And one psychoanalyst, a French woman, said um, he really got from her the unconditional love that made him have that self-confidence the rest of his life. But it's like he didn't want to be who he was. He wanted to keep remaking himself as somebody new. I think that's really surprising almost because I don't know about our listeners, but I almost have the image purely a sort of seducer. So to hear that he's tried to go into the priesthood, gone into the army, done law degree, I find that really surprising. Well, um, I think he genuinely loved women. Uh, they could feel he was interested in them as individual people. They were not accustomed to that. Um, and when he had a successful relationship, and he had several, um, they seemed to have been very powerful and mutual. But it was always um, it was always provisional. He never married. He never lived with a woman until very late in life. Most happily, it is clear to both parties that this is like a holiday out of normal life and will be having to go back to normal life. He often had affairs with married women who usually didn't get married for love, but for family reasons, uh, who found him a very enjoyable alternative, but never one that could last. So I would say that although it's it's central to his sense of who he is, he, he wants to be involved with the woman. It's, always, it's never several at once or very rarely. Uh, that was their choice. Um, it's usually one person at a time. But he knows it's just one more chapter in this long, unreeling narrative of my life. You said there about his relationships with women being somewhat mutual. How balanced could we say these were? Uh, well, that's one of the main questions I try to ask in my book, because it has not usually been asked. Biographers just tell his story the way he told it. And often, as I hinted with a kind of lip-smacking, vicarious you know, <laughs> enjoyment, I think it, they vary greatly. Uh, the one that meant the most to him was a woman who called herself Henriette, Henriette, a uh, French woman, or um, that may even be the alias he gives her. He carefully protect, protected her identity because I think she was from a distinguished family and he tried not to expose people in his memoir. But they met on the road. It's a long story. I won't try to summarize now, but it was clear they were both in a kind of limbo in time. She'd run away from her husband, suspected rightly that the, eventually she'd be um, encouraged to come back. Whatever caused the breach was healed. She was a noblewoman in, somewhere in Provence. In his case, he was between ideas what to do next, fell for her, suggested they go away together. Um, she agreed. So they had uh, two or three months of an absolutely idyllic relationship. He said it was more enjoyable when we weren't in bed. It was just, you know, to be with that person and talking to her it was uh, just so completely satisfying. He said, anybody who's never known an Henriette has never known what it is to love. And I think that's all true. But when the time came, she told him it's over and uh, they would not see each other again. It would be a beautiful memory. 
And uh, they parted in an inn in Jadiva, uh, where she had gone to um, get a lot of money because the bank there knew who she was. Uh, and after she left, he saw written on the window pane with, the, uh, with a diamond ring that she had given him. She had scratched into the glass, uh, tu oublieras aussi Henriette, you will also forget Henriette, uh, even though he never did. But it seemed to be her way of saying, you should forget me. Uh, you know, it, don't think this is an ongoing relationship. And on this occasion in later years when he actually encountered her and didn't know it, they had both aged a lot. Uh, and she recognized him, but didn't reveal herself. Uh, so that's, you know, quite a moving story and a novelistic story, but I think it's clearly not a bait up one. Um, at the other extreme, he was in Paris and a young woman of 17 named Manon Belletti, uh, real name was Maria Madalena. Uh, Manon fell in love with him uh, and wanted to marry him. And for various reasons, I think partly just because he liked her family and they were helping him out, um, agreed to be engaged. And they were engaged for three years. Uh, and then finally, it became obvious he was never going to get married. And she suspected he had other women. And she broke it off and married a much older man and had a reasonably happy life. But the reason I'm telling you this is those are the only letters that we have from somebody else in his life because he kept them. Although he destroyed a lot, which may have made him look even worse than he does look. But I think he didn't know how bad he does look. And biographers have just skimmed over her because he skims over her in his autobiography. You know, she was a clingy young person. I mean, they're quite superior to Manon. They're just heartbreaking letters. They're very poignant. She's such a thoughtful, deeply intelligent person. And she knows she's hooked on this guy and she's way over her head and doesn't know what to do about it. I wrote a whole chapter about those letters in Manon because then you get to finally see from a different perspective what it might have been like for somebody else. But they're all different. I'll give you one more example. Uh, he had got a young woman pregnant in Venice who he probably did think he would marry. Her father was very rich. And if, uh, if it could work out, that would have been a career choice almost. She was desperately in love with him. But her father found out she was involved with this guy, didn't know yet she was pregnant, and locked her up in a convent on the island of Murano where the glass is made and assumed that Casanova could never find her. There must have been 100 convents in Tennis. But she managed to smuggle a letter out, so he knew she was there. So he would go during visiting hours. The convents always had these. Uh, they would see each other through a screen of some kind. And meanwhile, somebody else was seeing her. There was another nun there, very beautiful, somewhat older nun, who, as he eventually pieced it all together, was already the lover of the girl he'd got pregnant, who had a miscarriage, and nobody ever knew she'd been pregnant, and so that all blew over. But the other nun, and he calls her M.M. with initials, and nobody's ever been able to ascertain for sure who that was, had a note delivered to him, and it said, I have a, a they called it a casino, not what we mean by that, it's just a little house, a little hideaway, elsewhere on the island of Murano, and if you'd like to drop by and spend the evening with me, you know, we could do so. So he ended up with this passionate love affair with M.M., during which she said, by the way, you know, when we were making love, you should know there's a spy hole on the wall. And my uh, actual regular lover was watching us, who he quickly figured out was the French ambassador to Venice. 
So instead of thinking how shaming and humiliating, he thought, that's great. Wow, the French ambassador is interested in me. So they end up with a threesome with the first girl, the one he got pregnant. It's just this huge, crazy story. Then it ends. And the reason I'm telling it is he realizes in retrospect, I was the one being used. The French ambassador and this noble woman who was in the convent, the older one, M.M., they were setting me up and they wanted to have this, you know, erotic game going on. And uh, actually, I was not masterful at all. I was uh, I was being used. Uh, so it's just such a complex story. And he tells it at considerable length. Uh, and I think quite honestly, because there's a lot in it that's embarrassing for him. Uh, so do you see what I mean? Now, those are just three examples. And I could give you 20 examples. They're, they're all different. And what makes him like a great novelist is he makes you feel the differences. They all tell such a different story mm-hmm. and they tell you a different part of his character, I guess, as well. Yeah, that's right. Although I don't have character, you know, the, the 18th century, they used the word character to mean a very definable kind of behavior, uh, almost a character type, which you should have. Uh, and if you ever read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, he deliberately chose the character he wanted and systematically created it for himself. Well, you know, modern people say he must have been hiding all kinds of, you know, insecurities and hostilities, but he's not going to tell us that. But I think the word that Casanova needed, and it's true for Rousseau, which was not then used, is personality. There are all these complex, you know, often contradictory behaviors that add up to that individual person, uh, which is not a character at all in the conventional sense. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The adventurer always begins again from point zero. It's like they're never building on their own history and career. They don't have a career. Uh, They're just starting again each time. What, What can I pull off? Uh, and very often he'll just pick up a hint and, and realize, oh, wow, I could pretend to be a great hydraulic engineer or something, you know, and it might work. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the transitory relationships. They're all kind of passing through. And obviously with this reputation of being this seducer, can we actually say he was ever in love? Oh, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. Um, he was a libertine, which in those days meant not just somebody who, you know, broke the rules, but somebody who thought the rules are mostly uh, self-serving by power structures that want to control my life. Uh, and I want to find out what is natural for me and live according to nature. And some of them were quite sincere about that. Of course, that's also what the Marquis de Sade said, who thought he was behaving as only came naturally. Uh, So it had its obvious drawbacks. What they would say is falling in love is a kind of emotional storm that by definition is impermanent. They would distinguish between pleasure and happiness. We think of um, pleasure as a particularly focused and keen form of happiness. They thought one thing or the other, happiness is an ongoing state of being. Pleasure is intense, but it burns out. It leaves a hangover afterwards. And so their view was falling in love, although it's perfectly real. And when it happens, you think this other person is the only being in the universe, then you move on. And other people, certainly um, 
even at that time, even earlier. John Donne, for example, the great love poet, married for love, even though it got him in big trouble, uh, married his boss's daughter, uh, was devastated when she died relatively young. That was what we mean by falling in love. But the libertine view was it must burn out because what you really wanted was that intensity of first falling, and you can't have that. So you go back and start again at point A with the next person. Uh, And uh, they were quite frank about it. And Casanova certainly absorbed that philosophy of life. So I think that's what he valued in Henriette, the one who he had the idyllic two months with, uh, that they both knew this isn't going to last forever. And that's why we love it so much in the moment. How common was this idea at the time? It was not uncommon, especially in aristocratic classes in Europe, but it was always obviously denounced by the church and by ordinary moralistic people and not without reason. So uh, I think particularly though in Venice, it was very common. That would have been a normal philosophy of life to absorb. And uh, the classical writer, he and his mentors in Venice always went back to as Epicurus. Epicurean means ideally enjoying everything in life for its own value. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean outrageous misbehavior. But there's a famous quote in um, Horace, who thought of himself as an Epicurean. He said, I would rather be a pig in Epicurus's sty than an ordinary human being. And the idea was, because the pig just lives as comes naturally, it doesn't have any, you know, hypocritical conventions that it tries to obey. Casanova quotes that in his introduction to his autobiography says, call me a pig if you want to, you know, I'd be happy to be a pig like that. (laughs) So it it was a philosophy, but you could easily say a self-serving one and um, and one that might get other people hurt. He seems to have been quite liberal in this sort of way, but was this the case throughout his life? Oh, it's a very good question. And for this reason, it's surprising to find he was politically extremely conservative. Uh, in his personal life, in his morals, extremely liberal. And in fact, uh, though he did train briefly to be a priest, uh, it's pretty clear he was an agnostic, if not atheist. Um, But he thought, and I think there's wonderful work, books by some um, French scholars, about the class of what was known as adventurers, the title I gave my book. These were mobile, basically con men, never staying long in one place because it would always get too hot to hold them, who were exploiting society, finding ways to parasitically get rich off its weaknesses. And for them, you needed a highly hierarchical, structured, traditional, patriarchal society. Uh, And the French Revolution, when it came, struck Casanova in exile in, in, in Bohemia as a disaster. That culture that he had thriven under, and even though they finally threw him out, you know, he appreciated what it had made possible. Uh, It was going to be now just a mob of ordinary people, you know, of course, the revolution turned sour, and Napoleon ended up destroying the Venetian Republic, which had lasted for 1,500 years. Uh, But it was more, you know, okay, so the Ancien Regime wasn't great, but but it sure was great for me. Uh, So his values are never predictable in that sense. Can you tell us a little bit more about his travels? Because he seems to have travelled to so many different places. Oh, yeah. He was always on the road. He he enjoyed it. Um, I forget the figure, but uh, 
One scholar calculated he probably traveled 40,000 miles in his lifetime, most of it, you know, at three miles an hour in a carriage. Uh, I mean, it's just quite astounding. And I, I say in my book, if you wanted to have a map of his travels, you wouldn't be able to interpret it. It would be just a hodgepodge of, you know, crossing lines. Uh, so I think the idea is you go to a new place and it's invigorating and they don't know you yet and you create a persona for yourself and you see what kind of action you might get into there. It's almost like it's time to have a new love affair. I've been in Madrid long enough. You know, I've, I've found out what I can do here and now I want something new. So he's always invigorated by just setting out. Well, one of these French scholars says the adventurer always begins again from point zero. It's like they're never building on their own history and career. They don't have a career. Uh, they're just starting again each time. What, what can I pull off? Uh, and very often he'll just pick up a hint and, and realize, oh, wow, I could pretend to be a great hydraulic engineer or something, you know, and it might work. <laughs> sometimes it didn't. He tried that with Frederick the Great, who saw through him. But, but, but sometimes it does work. So you mentioned Frederick the Great there. So who else did he meet on his travels? Curiously, he had a kind of um, almost a romantic view of monarchy because they don't have one in Venice. I mean, they didn't. It was it was always a republic. It had an aristocracy, but they elected the doge, which is really like um, duke or ducks. Uh, uh, it was a really a ceremonial office. He had no real power. Uh, it was full of checks and balances because what they wanted was to protect the freedom of commerce and uh, the privileges of the aristocrats. And the last thing they wanted was the king. He was quite smitten with Louis XV. He thought him incredibly handsome. And just when he got to see him at court, just the way he carried himself, and it was almost, you know, like a boyish enthusiasm. Uh, so uh, he uh, always tried to ingratiate himself with monarchs, uh, not in England because um, he couldn't speak to them. Uh, and it uh, did not work out really in France, but he did. <laughs> briefly tell you this story. He got involved with a very young woman, probably early teens, which in those days was not considered unacceptable, who was not a prostitute, but uh, certainly expected to get a lot of money if she slept with somebody and wasn't interested in sleeping with him. But he thought she was so great looking that he had the great painter Boucher do a portrait of her naked lying on her stomach, which was seen by Louis XV, who was so taken with it that he acquired her as a mistress. And it's like Casanova had provided the king with a mistress. But when he tried to actually get uh, employment from kings, usually they were used to his type. So Frederick the Great clearly saw through this guy, you know, had conversations with him, but you're not a hydraulic engineer. I don't need to have you around me. Um, in fact, Casanova was furious because after they had a long, serious conversation about some practical subject, the king paused and looked him up and down and said, you are a very handsome man. And the king was known to be homosexual and all of his palace guard were over six feet tall. And Casanova was over six feet tall. He was insulted. He said, you're just telling me what you'd tell any of your palace guard, which was not a polite thing to say to the king. So he left there and he went to St. Petersburg because he thought Catherine the Great might, um, might employ him. And she saw through him, too. So although she had some friendly chats, that didn't lead anywhere. And then he went to Poland, which had a very impressive King Stanislav, who he thought he could work for. And Stanislav liked him, but there was a bitter quarrel between pro-Russian and anti-Russian people, and Casanova got tangled up in that. Uh, and that's when 
because of various reasons he fought a duel with pistols. There was a Count Branicki, who was a very highly placed nobleman in, in Warsaw, uh, who was uh, interested in some Italian actress and found Casanova chatting with her and Brunicki was drunk and Casanova didn't actually have any involvement with this person, but Brunicki took offense and called him a, um, <laughs> called him a, a Venetian coward and you're not supposed to insult someone by calling him a coward. Uh, Casanova had to challenge him to a duel because uh, otherwise his honor would have been exposed as a sham and even though he wasn't a nobleman, uh, he Bernicke agreed to fight the duel because Casanova was a fellow Mason. That's a story I can't go into, but they were a society that Casanova found useful all over Europe. So they fought a duel, not with swords, which Casanova actually had practice in, but Bernicke said, then I'd never know if you're just a professional and better than me. So pistols are fair because we're both you know, equally provided with identical weapons. However, Bernicke was a crack shot who could fire a lead bullet at a, the edge of a sword 50 feet away and split the bullet. So Casanova was probably going to get killed. Instead, they were both wounded, but Brunicki wounded worse. Uh, Brunicki's attendants came rushing up to dispatch Casanova, and Brunicki from the ground called out, leave that gentleman alone, he has behaved honorably. <laughs> they both got better, and they became close friends, because that was the culture of dualism, and the, it was critical to expose your life as if it was didn't matter to you because that showed you were truly noble at heart. Uh, so Casanova is so proud of that, he wrote a little book about it called The Duel, uh, which was read all over Europe long before the autobiography. Uh, so that was a case where, even though he didn't get anywhere with the King of Poland, you know, he, he insinuated himself into the court and became friendly with courtier types. And uh, then there were reasons why he had to leave Poland. So he moved on to the next place. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I mean, he, he he met Benjamin Franklin, of all people. They went to a lecture on ballooning and they had a nice chat, although he doesn't tell us much about it. He met Samuel Johnson's. Uh, somebody said Johnson has written a great dictionary of the English language. So they got together and chatted about etymology, although almost certainly speaking in Latin, which they could both speak. <laughs> yeah, he had a, a, a gift for running into people or cultivating them. He, he deliberately went to visit Voltaire, whom he worshipped, but uh, Voltaire was kind of insulting to him, and he wrote a long, bitter account of how that had gone. Essentially, for someone who was born not an aristocrat, he seems to have really sort of worked his way up to be engaging with so many influential and what we now know is quite famous people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that, that's extraordinary, really. He's almost crafted himself, like you said earlier, into this sort of chameleon character, crafted himself into aristocrat. Yeah, and um, it's actually been pointed out, which might surprise us today, that his skill at gambling was important because not just at um, official casinos, but in private parties. People gambled for money all the time in the upper classes in Europe. Uh, and that was the way he could insinuate himself. And because he was charming and well-read and uh, worldly, uh, people would get to like him. And so they would start accepting him as one of their own. And of course, that was his dearest wish to be taken for an aristocrat. I'll give you one little example. Um, one time he was on the road, he was on the road a lot, he was at Rolling Stone. That was after he'd been kicked out of England. And 
Uh, he stopped off in Grenoble. He still had a lot of the money he had gotten from that noblewoman and decided to rent an estate just for a couple of months. And fortunately, um, Marie-Françoise Luna, who was a great uh, Casanova scholar and as a professor at the University of Grenoble, was able to figure out where the place was. And it's an astounding, you know, massive mansion with a huge formal garden around it and a, a river flowing in the front. And he rented this for a colossal sum of money just so he could invite people there and be an impressive, you know, rich guy. Of course, it was an act, but it felt real to him. So, of course, the aristocrats of Grenoble would think this guy is one of us. If he was around today, what do you think we would think of his personality, of his actions, perhaps? Well, there are popular films all the time about people who pull off a brilliant con. Um, and it's not like Bernie Madoff, who is just uh, swindling people out of their money with absolutely no human remorse at all. Uh, because I think Casanova thought he wasn't hurting people. It's like somebody who's just good at playing a role so convincingly uh, that it feels right to the people he's interacting with. And it's like it's an end in itself. And if he gets money out of it, which he tried to do, so much the better. But for example, when he conned that rich noblewoman. He's basically saying, I was giving her what she wanted. Somebody else would have done it if I didn't. You know, she was delusional. Uh, so all I was was playing on her existing wants and filling a need that she had. And of course, that's disingenuous. But he would not have, I think, set up some poor person and uh, stripped their bank account and uh, not given a darn about it. Uh, so maybe we would think he was still charming. But I think, can I quote to you a great saying by Simone Weil, the 1940s French philosopher. She said, imaginary evil is always fascinating. Real evil is always horrible. Imaginary goodness is always boring. Real goodness is wonderful. So we will read in fiction um, all kinds of things that are fun to imagine that we would not like if we ever ran into a person like that. I think this almost brings me to my final question for you. How do you want people to think about Casanova today? Oh, I think open-mindedly. I think I tried to present all sides of the story, including um, kinds of criticism, but also kinds of appreciation that, you know, modern interpreters have helped us to think about. Uh, so it's not at all I'm saying this should be your hero, but I'm also not saying you should despise this man because he's obviously a monster. Um, he's just a very complicated and very interesting person who's trying to understand his own life as it comes to a close and as it's in a way already over for him. Uh, and as with Rousseau, who I wrote a biography of, uh, not someone you'd want as your roommate, a very complicated guy, had fallings out with all of his closest friends, uh, and yet a genius. And uh very, very interesting person. And I felt in writing that biography, I wasn't saying you have to love Rousseau. Uh, but I think I was saying you'll appreciate trying to understand Rousseau. And that's what I hope to do with Casanova. That was Leo Damrosch. He's a graduate of Trinity College, Cambridge, who is now Professor of Literature at Harvard University. Leo's book, Adventurer, The Life and Times of Giacomo Casanova is out now. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt.